The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are uh, in 1 Peter 5, and I'm going to pick up here verses 1 to 5. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. God, as we look at this passage together and consider what does shepherding or pastors look like and more broadly Christian leadership, we ask that you would help us by your spirit. Um, to experience Jesus, even in a passage that can feel like it doesn't relate to a lot of us. Help us, we pray, God, to see your goodness for us here and to experience the love of Jesus in our congregation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I will say this is one of those awkward parts of my job is that from time to time as we preach through books of the Bible, we run into passages that seem to have a bit of a conflict of interest. (laughs) Like... um, this is clearly about people in my position. Um, and maybe as we read this, you're uh, holding this up as a metric of like, does Jacob domineer over us? I don't know. He said that mean thing to me the other day. Um, but I think we all can sometimes come to this passage and uh, have this sense of not only does this not relate to me, but it can also relate to me in extremely negative ways. We read these this passage and think, oh, I've, I've experienced this type of bad shepherding or bad pastors. And it can kind of stir up a lot of emotions. As we look at this passage, the reason Peter has this here for us is that he is trying to kind of close out this letter for this congregation and help them recognize Jesus is giving them shepherds to help them follow him. Jesus is in their midst and he's helping them orient towards each other. How do you understand this relationship? How do you understand what's going on here? You remember, as, as we've worked through the book of 1 Peter, he's worked through several authority structures. How do you understand, in a Christian sense, what is, um, what is Jesus and Jesus breaking into the local economy? How does that change how slaves relate to masters? Or how husbands and wives relate to each other? Here again, Peter is talking about how does the gospel, how does who Jesus is, shape how we just operate as an organization, as a congregation together. So at face value, this passage does relate to people in my role right now doing what I'm doing, but it also relates to how does it, how do you and your various roles, whether you're a pastor or not, how do you relate to being a Christian in a leadership capacity where you are? How does Jesus, when he steps into your life, and changes, so to speak, your spiritual zip code so that you're, you might live in six, you know, 03103 or 03105, 
but your spiritual address is kingdom of heaven. How does that shape how you then engage with those people around you? So we're going to kind of go from that angle of seeing not only how does this shape how we understand what does it mean for, for us to have shepherds and pastors, but then by extension, if shepherds are called to this, what does it look like for me and my various capacities of leadership look like? Is that making sense for tracking? Okay. All right. The main point of what we're seeing here is Christian leadership reveals a character of Jesus' love for a congregation. I think that's what we've just been saying. That's what we're seeing in this passage. And we're going to kind of break this down. We're going to look at verse 1, verse 2 to 4, and then verse 5. And we're going to see that in verse 1, good shepherds exist because of Jesus. Here we have Peter addressing this. Good shepherds exist because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Let's just pause right there. What is Peter saying here? Here's one way of reading this. At face value, it can read like the Apostle Peter is just kind of like rolling out his uh, LinkedIn account so they know, here's my resume. Here's all that I've done, right? Remember, I'm Peter. This is, everybody knows Peter, right? He is one of the few apostles that everybody basically knows everything about him, right? He was a fisherman. Um, he got ahead of his mouth in a lot of occasions. He denied Jesus at the, uh, at the crucifixion. He was restored by Jesus after the, after the resurrection. Um, not only that, but then he went on to functionally be kind of be the lead guy in all of the churches in the time. Right? We all know that kind of resume. And so is that, is that what Peter is doing here? I exhort you, and is it kind of like, like, he's, like when the CEO of a company does, like, what does that show where they're like the hidden CEO, hidden boss or whatever? What, you know what Undercover boss. Is Peter kind of pulling an undercover boss here where he's kind of like, oh, I know I'm a big apostle, but I really just kind of put things, sandwiches together like the rest of you guys. Is that what he's doing here? I think what Peter's doing here is when he says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness. That fellow word right there, that fellow, that governs, that kind of governs everything else that's going on here. Peter is in a sense, he's not throwing out his resume. What he's doing is he is saying, I am an elder among you in the same way that you're an elder or you're a shepherd. And if you are a shepherd, what is your job? It is to witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as be a fellow partaker in the glory that is be to reveal. And I'll just point out before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Verse 13 in chapter 4, just a few verses before, Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. They may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter's not really offering very much that's separate or different for elders. He's just narrowing the scope and saying, if your job is to govern and to witness, to point, like your job is to point to him. Like that is your function in the church. Everybody has a lot of different roles in the church. If your job is to make sure, hey, everybody, we are keeping it focused on him, on Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. My job as an elder is to make sure that we keep the main thing on Jesus and primarily focused on him. Which also means that what Peter's doing is he's not saying, you know what, all you other elders are out there, you govern a church, but I actually got a personal note from Jesus. Jesus personally told me that I'm going to be an elder. But he doesn't get, he doesn't use that like, hey, Jesus talked to me and like, he told me that I'm going to do this job. 
his credentials, the reason that he is an elder is because just like any other elder in any other healthy or good church, their job is quite simply to be somebody who points people to Jesus, keep their finger pointed there, and make sure we're all on the same team together pointing at Jesus. That's what Peter's doing. Like he's not rolling out his resume. He's not one-upping them. What that means is that at the end of the day, an elder is an elder is an elder. There's no super elders. There's no extra elders. There's, there's elders that are just elders in various capacities and giftings and strengths. We, I tend to use the three things of gifted, called, and qualified. An elder is an elder. There's, there's no, like, just because I tend to do this on a more regular basis does not mean that I am more of an elder with a vote and a half compared to the rest of the elders in our church. Peter is recognizing that within a congregation, there are elders and they function and their job is the same as anybody else. But I think when this comes to Christian influence and Christian leadership, what this means is you may have incredible gifting and skill. And I thank God for all the ways in which each of us are incredibly gifted and skilled in different ways. That does not then give you a leverage up to the people in your organization or whoever you're around to influence as though to say you are like extra human just because you've got Jesus in your corner. Your role is to help and point other people towards healthy and good flourishing lives without kind of having to like bank on your credentials. Like I, I can't think of many times in my, my life as a pastor where I basically had to pull the pastor card and be like, you need to listen to me because I'm a pastor. Like that's just not the way I function. In our lives and Christian way we engage other people, it, it's not a good way to lead other people to say, hey, you know what? Um, at the end of the day, I know the God of the universe and so you gotta listen to what I say or whatever sort of power move you wanna do. Okay, second thing we want to look at, this is where I think things are going to get a little dicey. We're going to look at verses 2 to 4. Elders exist because of Jesus, not because of any credentials they have that are above what a regular Christian has. Frankly, all the qualifications for being an elder are the exact same things as what the Bible calls all Christians to, right? Love other people, character, hospitable, all these things. It's the same for me as it is for anybody else. It is focused in helping our congregation in terms of being an elder. But more specifically, Peter's going to get in a few things where he's going to kind of divide between not this, but this in verses two to four. So we're going to see how good shepherds reveal Jesus' character. So this is all under the auspice of how Jesus loves a congregation. And so what this is going to be, I think, where we spend the majority of our time, good shepherds reveal Jesus' character. And the first thing I want to comment on before, we, I, I want to read these verses, but I want to read them with one thing in your mind. When we hear the word shepherd, we all should think of, like, actual sheep, like, actual shepherds, like, not, like, the metaphor. No, no, like, the actual thing. There's two different types of shepherding in the world, generally speaking. Um, there is the Western mode of shepherding, which is when a shepherd is uh, among a, a, a flock of sheep, and he drives the sheep in a direction. The Western mode of shepherding is the shepherd is behind the sheep, and he drives them to the direction he's trying to go, whether it's through a valley, to get good food, to go get sheared, whatever it is. A shepherd sits, it works from behind and drives the sheep. In the Middle Eastern context, a shepherd is out in front. He's out in front of a congregation or the sheep, 
and he uses his voice to call them. This is going to immediately sound very familiar to you if you've ever read through the book of John or other parts of the New Testament where Jesus says, the sheep know my voice. That's not just because he's kind of like, you know, they recognize me for who I am. He's actually using shepherding imagery that in the Middle East, they use their voice to, to call sheep forward. They know the voice of their shepherd. So that is what is in view here when Peter says, a shepherd in a, a Christian congregation is to be, in a certain sense, in front and leading by the character of his voice and work, which I think we would all recognize should reflect that of Jesus. So let me read two to four, and I, I want you to have that in your mind as we kind of work through this, because I think some of that stuff, just those sort of basic tools help us kind of figure out what's going on here. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So we have here basically three traits of one side of the thing, one side of the equation, toxic shepherding, you might call it. The other side of the equation is good shepherding, faithful shepherding, however you want to frame that. So what I want to do is just kind of go through each kind of section one by one. So here we have the first kind of trait of toxic shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So that's a governance category, like governing, leading, caring for other people, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And I think this is probably the one of the three that we all kind of read and we're kind of like, I just don't understand exactly what's going on here. And some of that could just be, I think, because of our kind of American ethos of like, I've got my constitutional rights, I've got my rights and freedoms, you can't infringe upon me or pressure me to do anything I don't want to do. And bro, we live in the live for your die state, right? So like we see under compulsion, we're kind of like, what's wrong with you? Are you like from Vermont or something like that? Like, no, this is, anyhow. So I think we have to remember, in the context that Peter is addressing, he is speaking to a church that is under persecution. So one way of understanding this is, quite frankly, it could have been like um, the church is under persecution. Everybody doesn't like us. So if we just elect David to be out front and be the guy, um, he can be the last man standing and I'll go home. Kind of like last man standing sort of thing, being like, you know, who's the last guy to get picked or whatever. It's just directed towards making, you know, he's the guy who's going to be up front. So it could be a sort of thing of way a congregation elects their leaders. Is it going to be like by vote? You know, and if you're voted in, like, sorry, Jacob, you got the vote. Like everybody, 90% of the congregation wants to be the pastor. I know you didn't want to do this and you don't have time or capacity to do it, but hey, you're doing it because everybody voted. Like, are you getting compelled to do it because of that? The other part of me, just from my own experience of kind of, I think you have to use some experience to kind of fill in some of the gaps here of what's going on. Is it because of some sense of loyalty to another pastor in the congregation that I like that guy, I'm on his team, he's a charismatic guy that I, 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 want, to, I want to have his back, and so there's a, like a, a relational loyalty that compels you to be in leadership that really at the end of the day is just not your thing. I don't know what's going on. But clearly, like, being compelled to shepherd a congregation is bad. Like, that's not what Peter's saying is good. He says, in, in contrast to that, right, 
um, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Willingly is the big category of like, do you, do you want to do this? Do you want to shepherd? Do you want to care for people and help them move forward in Jesus and follow him and obey him and grow in him or find him even? Is that what you want to do? And this is not like a Jesus juke where it's like, what, you don't want to do that? It's like, well, everybody just has their ways of expressing faithfulness to Jesus. It's like some people want to focus their time on that and other people want to focus their time in a lot of different areas. And that's totally fine. Jesus' shepherds pastor willingly according to God's will. And I think that according to God's will is interesting to consider because he's saying that in a context where this church is probably trying to figure out who they are, get their sea legs underneath them. They're a new church. And uh, they're trying to figure out how do we do this leadership congregation thing. And probably their impulses are, well, you know what? When um, I've seen my, you know, in their context, Roman authority figures run their organization in this particular way. They run it in a Roman way, and that seems very efficient, obviously very successful. Um, and so let's use those type of uh, tactics and how we organize and get everybody on board and move our congregation forward. I think what Peter's doing is specifically contrasting. Here, here's what Christian leadership looks like as opposed to the world's way of leadership. You see this, I always, I'm not sure how many uh, Christian leadership books you've read or books about pastoring you've read. I've understandably uh, read a ton of them. And unfortunately, what you often find within kind of Christian leadership circles is um, yeah, we're going to shepherd, but you know what? This business model makes a little bit more sense for how we're going to organize our church, organize our leadership team, organize all this stuff, and we're going to implement that type of thing. So, for example, one thing that I've seen um, is having a uh, you have the shepherd, the, the pastors of a church, so the elder board, pastor, whatever you call it, all the pastors of a church. But you know, in order to make decisions, we're going to kind of section some of the executive ones off. We're going to have within the shepherds the executive elder team, and they're going to make the decisions. The other guys are going to care for people, go and touch people and stuff, but we're going to take care of all the, like, the big decisions, you know, buying property, budgets, how we do all that stuff. And that comes straight out of um, Maxwell's book and all these guys, leadership business guys. And uh, Peter's saying, no, don't, don't do that. An elder is an elder. You're all shepherds, and you want to be in it together because you want to care for God's people. So, you want to lead and protect a congregation. All right, second trait. If you have questions on these things, you can certainly text them in. Uh, we're going to go on the second one here. Toxic pastors, second trait, are in it for shameful gain. Right, you see that. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as according to God would have you. And then the second clause there, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Again, this is not rocket science to see these things. But what does he mean? by not uh, for shameful gain. Have any of you seen the Instagram account, uh, Preachers and Sneakers? You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, Mike Lines knows Preachers and Sneakers over there. So Preachers and Sneakers is an Instagram account where this guy was uh, tracking with pastors and you know trying to, I imagine, uh, benefit from their teaching. And you just notice like this strange thing where I'm like, man, what are the sneakers that these guys are wearing? And he started looking up and I'm like, these are like $1,000 sneakers. Like the guys are like up in front of the, these, these conferences preaching and, and they're like, these, sh-. by the way, my shoes are hocus, <laughs> if you want to know. But he's just looking them up and he's like, why, why is this pastor preaching in a $5,000 jacket? 
or whatever. And it's just kind of getting at this point of, I think especially in a consumeristic culture like ours, we, we get what this is after, not for shameful gain, not for people who are in it for the money, because honestly, you're running an organization that is, that is based on, we wanna help people and people wanna give money. And sometimes if your organization is successful, there's a lot of money. You could benefit off of that, not without any sort of safeguards or accountability or anything like that. Rather, again, after the heart motivation here, Jesus shepherds pastor eagerly, right? What are you wanting to grow as a pastor? Are you wanting people to grow or your wallet to grow? That's where he's contrasting. All right, third thing here, toxic pastors, verse four, I'm sorry, uh, yes, verse four, um, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. This one I think probably is elastic enough where we can all begin to kind of feel and track with this in one way or the other. And if you haven't, I think that's a grateful thing that you should thank God for. But often domineering, domineering leadership is prevalent within congregations where pastors bully those who are not on their side, domin- um, make demeaning comments and, and jabs and jokes about other people for one reason or the other. It could look like yelling in staff meetings or, con- or meetings um, with members of the elder team to get their way and being kind of excused as like, well, they're just passionate, like that type of thing. Um, weaponizing Bible verses against other people. This is, uh, this is the sort of thing that's very common and happens all the time. Jesus' shepherds, in contrast, are not to domineer over congregations, but what does it say? Being examples to the flock. Right, and then pull in from verse four, or uh, from earlier, being examples to the flock that have been entrusted to you. In Jesus's congregation, in Jesus's church, shepherds live and influence primarily by who they are, not by their gifting. Shepherds are great, they should have gifts, right? Speaking in front of people is not easy. Um, counseling people and helping them understand their life, their life needs, what's going on. That is something that takes skill to navigate through, figuring out and understanding what is us as a congregation, uh, who, who are we and what are the particular needs and directions that we have, how do we respond to the, the work of God in our neighborhood or context. That takes skill. But the function ultimately is not about how one guy is gifted or not, but in fact it is about who he is among our within a congregation and does he have the the feel of jesus does he have a sense of a gracious compassion for your goodness for your good and growth in jesus if you look at the life of jesus how did he influence those around him and where do you see the sharp edges of his ministry sharp edges of his ministry was largely reserved for religious hypocrites who were domineering over god's people his compassion were for people who were regularly often and often the ones who are subjects of abuse, who are wayward, who are just needing help. That's where you find Jesus' leadership is to care for them, to come under, come under their needs and to help them. To come alongside them, um, those who are hurting and wayward. It is to be eager for God's work in the lives of those around you and to join it. So I think these are the three, not this, but this categories. And we offer a couple comments on this in terms of our own context in America right now. 
um, we can, I think one thing that we can take from is a, a certain type of encouragement. It's going to be strange. When we read this, we should take a certain type of encouragement that the reality is um, seeing toxic pastors be exposed, toxic ministries being exposed for the name of Jesus, etc. Anything like that, it can feel incredibly disheartening and just kind of like, oh, another one. There's a certain comfort in knowing that Peter had the same problems too. I, I would be willing to bet that these categories of, right, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering over those in your charge, those come out of Peter's own experience. And in fact, probably Peter's own experience with the very uh, people he trained to be pastors. Trained them, installed them as an elder, went on to go plant another church, come back. Bro, what are you doing? And I'm just saying, like, I, I like the guys who trained me for ministry, but they weren't Peter. <laughs> like, they didn't see the resurrected Christ. I mean, you can imagine, this guy has seen the resurrected Christ. He knows the whole story. He, he doesn't have to rely on somebody else's witness. He's like, I saw Jesus. I saw the wound in his hand. He, he cooked me breakfast with fish. He fed me. He installed me as an elder. And even Peter is struggling with seeing these types of toxic realities in the world around him because people are people and wickedness is incredibly deceptive. Peter had the same issue. In fact, it continues all through church history. I have a quote here from uh, St. Gregory the Great, who was one of the great popes of the early church. In fact, actually, the irony of this quote is that, um, can we put this up, Gregory the, Gregory the Great? He um, was compelled to be a pastor. <laughs> he was like, people were like, you are so godly and know your Bible. He was like, I don't want to be a pastor. Yeah, 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 but you're so godly and you know your Bible. He's like, I don't want to be a pastor. Like, yeah, so now you're the bishop. And he was like, I don't want to be the bishop. Like, but you're the bishop now. So he was, you know, it's funny to me. Um, very, very, for often when the soul of pastor is inflamed because of the authority he holds over the lady, it becomes corrupted and moved to pride by the allure of power. That is starkly real, and that is from 1,500 years ago. 500 years after the Apostle Peter, thereabouts, 1,500 years ago from where we stand now, and it is as though he was reading Christianity Today and commenting on all the dynamics that he sees going on in American evangelicalism. I find it comforting that this is just a perpetual issue. Another, another thing I want to observe here before we kind of move into the final uh, uh, commentary here on verse 4 is this dynamic of gifting and character. In America, we love gifting. We have the whole show, America's Got Talent. We just have the way in which we celebrate somebody as a gifted individual, whatever, however they express that. And when it comes to pastors, we front gifting. Is he a compelling speaker? Are they a compelling worship leader? Are they just so gifted and great at what they do that we are just enthralled by the way that it is just so beautiful? I'm not saying that we don't want ungifted people, but we front it as though it is the primary thing. And what it ends up doing is it enables this type of toxic leadership. So has anybody listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast? I'm not sure. Like my non-Christian friends were tracking with it and were asking me questions about it. So I, it, that's why I asked because it seems pretty, pretty prevalent. There was a bonus episode that was recently released, um, and it was an interview with Tim Keller. And the only reason I mention it is because 
Tim Keller had this comment in there where he was he was talking to um, a pastor who had been found out to be a serial adulterer. He had been having loads of affairs, and Tim was talking to him, and he just said that this guy had a moment of just kind of giving a window into how this type of thing happens. The guy would say, you know what, on Saturdays I really wanted to be over. And I would resolve on Saturdays that I was going to call this, the person he was having an affair with on Mondays and call it off. But I would get to Sunday, I would get up and preach, and everybody loved how great my sermon was. And so Monday morning I would conclude, God must still be with me, and then go and meet up with this person he was having an affair with and not call it off. So that's the way this whole gifting thing functions and enables or perpetuates this whole toxic thing within leadership is that we care more about the gifting and how incredibly spectacular or incredibly powerful the feeling comes to us of how people express and talk talk about Jesus or play the guitar or do great presentations. And I'm not saying that to say we don't want people who are gifted. But what it does is that it means that we, we locate God's blessing with gifting rather than what this verse is doing and locating God's blessing with character. I would rather have, and I hope you can feel this with me, I would rather have pastors who stumble through sermons and help point me to Jesus and understand my life because I know that they care about me and they are men of integrity than the most powerful sermon by whoever fill in the blank is your favorite preacher. That's what this is going after. It's not to excuse the ways in which I need to grow as a pastor or whatever. But it is to say the location of God's blessing, his love for us as in church, in any church, this is not just unique to King's Cross, this is any congregation, is the type of shepherds who know and love Jesus and are excited about what Jesus is doing within the other people in the congregation. And then it says... At the end of verse four, or verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The, the way this is constructed is to say, if you as a shepherd live in a way that points other people to Jesus, that reveals him instead of your own agenda, when Jesus is revealed to the world at the final day, he will also have a reward for you. It, it's as you reveal, when Jesus is revealed, there is a rewarding. And again, this is not unique to elders or pastors. They're, it's almost the same phrase is used for other Christians. He's just locating and saying, this is that important. What you do in a congregation is seen by the eternal eyes of God and will be rewarded on that eternal day when he rewards and condemns those who govern justly or unrighteously. Okay, we're going to move on. You guys tracking? I could say a lot about this stuff and rant about it, but... I've only got so much time. Verse 5, safe congregations are joined by humility in Jesus. So, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here we have, just quite simply, a statement from Peter. At face value, this can seem to say, like, anybody who's not an elder is a younger person. And you have to understand... This is a church planting context. The church would maybe be five years old, not much older. These are people who were freshly out of either growing up in a Jewish context or growing up in a Greek or Roman context. And they're, they're all kind of thrust together in Jesus to try to figure this out. 
and they just are trying to figure out how do we do this together? And Peter is basically saying those who are the elders who have a little bit more maturity in Jesus and those who are still trying to figure it out together, make sure that you're humble and oriented towards each other, right? There is an emphasis that, well, this is a good relationship, but it's not a domineering relationship like what you would have had in the past. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. That includes elders. That includes how elders relate to a congregation. That, that includes how a congregation relates to an elder. It is to move towards each other in deferential love. Right? There is an authority in the eldership, but it is not domineering. It is for the good and serving of other people. And there is a type of submission within a congregation towards elders that is for the congregation's good. So let me speak to that for a second because that submission word immediately makes me think, I got some questions. What does that mean? So we have here, when he says in verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject or in submission to the elders. So the ways in which I've seen this poorly expressed is for example, consulting with elders when you're gonna go on vacation. Can I go on vacation or not? Can I move or not? Am I gonna move to another town or not? Move to another church or not? Um, having to get like an elder's stamp of approval, like that's not what this is about. This is not about uh, whether you report criminal activity. Do you go to your pastors and get permission to like, report criminal activity? You got criminal activity going on, man. There's the police for a reason. Talk up to those guys. I'm not going to stand in the way of that. Domestic violence and submission within a marriage. Do you talk to your pastors first or do you go to the police first? Please go to the police first. I will gladly meet you there, but don't come to me first unless you need help making the phone call. I don't determine whether you call the authorities or not in those types of situations. Uh, I don't tell you how to vote, right? I've seen it, pastors, I don't know why, but they are very intent on telling people specifically how to vote. Bro, unless you've got like a Bible verse, I really am not gonna tell you the way you're gonna practice your politics. A lot of people wanna practice their politics according to what a pastor says. That's not what the submission is about. You can have different opinions about loads of things than what I have opinions about. Um, I'm not going to make a joke there because this is kind of serious. Um, so I want to look at the book of 1 Peter as a bit of our guide for what does he mean by submission? Well, Peter would have been practicing the type of submission that he's calling us to throughout the course of this book. So let me just kind of, kind of leapfrog through some verses here and we're just going to kind of point out Here's what Peter means when he says submit to the congregate, to the elders. So can we go to the next? We've got a few sequence of slides here. Can we go to this? First uh, Peter 1 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you've not now seen him, you believe in him and rejoice with him that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Here Peter is saying, look, my job is to help you understand what you experience on the inside for Jesus and how it relates to Jesus. Loving Jesus is a primary responsibility of my job as a pastor and to help you see what does it mean alone. Verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. This is my job, Peter is saying, is to help you understand your discipleship in terms of that final day when Jesus returns. What does it mean to follow Jesus, right? How do you have sober-minded? How do you prepare for action? So sometimes that means helping you kind of think through certain dynamics either in your personal life, work life, or whatever, but it's for you to figure out what does it mean for Jesus to, for you to follow Jesus in that context, not for me to tell you what to do, 
Next slide. Chapter 2, verse 9. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here, Peter is, quite frankly, doing one of the things I love to do as a pastor, is reminding people of their deepest and truest identity. Who you truly are. How do we help change that internal narrative of I'm the problem, I'm the worst, I am filling the blank, to I am somebody that is chosen by God to know him and love him. I am somebody that has become somebody that is defined not only by grace, but grace for the good of other people. That's what this verse is about. That's my job. Check 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Uh, we talk about this and then when we preach through those passages on slaves and, and wives and husbands. But this is, um, if Jesus breaks into your life and you want to follow Jesus, it is going to mess up and make complicated a lot of the, the relationships in your life. How do we do that in a way that continues to honor love your neighbor as yourself? Again, I'm not telling you what to do, but it is honoring how to, it is recognizing the grace of God in your life and helping you honor Jesus and honor those around you when life is complicated. So that's not a cookie cutter life for everybody. It's figuring out, understanding the dynamics. And again, that's helping people understand those things. Next verse, next, here we go. Finally, finally, um, have unity of mind, all of you, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Here the job of a pastor and the submission that he's calling us to is unity. How do we find unity together in our own very different lives of diverse unity? 4-7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, another statement of basically, what does it mean to follow Jesus with the long view in mind? This is uh, a discipleship-oriented command. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How do we understand what it means to follow Jesus when life gets hard and suffering is real? Now, the, care, the, the type of submission that Peter's calling us to is a spiritual, I want to follow Jesus in these situations in my life, and it is hard. I need somebody to help me think through this who's in my corner to help me find what God's, what God's doing. That's the type of submission that he's talking about. This is not all of those other things. You know, my opinion about either politics or the Red Sox is not governing for your life. The way I want to help you find what Jesus is doing in your life, that's what Peter's calling us to. Okay, is everybody tracking with me? I feel like we're getting a little, a little bit warm. I'm getting hot. Is anybody else hot? Sorry, maybe it's just talking. So much hot air up here. <laughs> all right, let me close out by saying this, all right? Christian leadership. What we see here is not just limited to elders. Christian leadership is not using your sort of whatever your credentials or whatever your accomplices are to manipulate and control other people. It is, in fact, using all the gifts that you have to serve and enable other people to be healthy in their lives. And it cultivates a humble, accessible culture around it. I think that's something that all of us can do, whether you work at McDonald's or you work at wherever you work. 
whatever your family dynamics are, it is, we can all benefit from somebody in that space who is working for the good and flourishing of God's people around them, whether they are following Jesus or not, cultivating a humble, accessible attitude with those around us, right? We've talked about the particulars of kind of the church context, but I think broadly, that's how that influences our lives with those around us. Jesus gifts and gives elders and leaders as an expression of his love for how he wants his people to grow. So, with that in mind, let's pray, turn to questions, and then we can move on. God, as we have considered this category of what it means to be a shepherd and elder, I ask that you would help us to be people who know Jesus' love, that are shaped by him, and that experience this type of relationship, not only in this church, but any other church we may be a part of. And God, would you help us to be people who grow in loving Jesus and reflecting him in our relationships here in this church and in our various contexts of the week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.